This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, sitting in for Josh King, here's Jeff Smith. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on the POTUS channel. I'm Jeff Smith, urban policy professor at the New School and former Missouri State Senator, sitting in for Josh King. This week, we'll dissect the politics of the American South with special attention to Mississippi, the state at the epicenter of American politics the last week, amid a major challenge to Mississippi Senator Thad Cochran. We'll dig deep to explain just what happened and why it all matters for the rest of the nation. Since the Civil War, wealthy and struggling whites clashed over wages, the right to organize unions, and the role of government. But in Mississippi, at least, about the only thing they agreed upon was the myth of black inferiority that helped unify Mississippi and the South in national political battles to lock in ironclad segregation and ban black voting. Throughout the 20th century, the Mississippi Democratic Party housed these two factions. Mississippi politics was a battle between the Delta Planters and the poor white Peckerwoods, as political scientist V.O. Key called them. The planters wanted low taxes and limited public services. The so-called Peckerwoods favored the New Deal and the electricity and jobs it brought to the rural South. The affluent Delta produced politicians such as Senator James Eastland, while the poorer Piney Woods region of Mississippi produced politicians like KKK member Senator Theodore Bilbo, a fire-breathing race baiter whose vile rhetoric embarrassed the genteel Delta planters. These divisions persist in Mississippi politics today, except now they exist within the Republican Party instead. As the Mississippi Republican Party's elder statesman, Thad Cochran is a modern-day James Eastland, embodying the measured tone of the planter class. Conversely, the fiery Chris McDaniel was born and raised in an impoverished rural county, and McDaniel's retrograde rhetoric on race and sex bore uncomfortable resemblances to the hateful Bilbo speeches of yesteryear. But after much strife and bloodshed, civil rights finally came to Mississippi in the 1960s, giving politicians a new voting block with which to contend. Yet even after black residents began registering and voting, it was often considered taboo for politicians to actually court their votes. That all changed three weeks ago. After McDaniel's near upset in the primary, Cochran tried an unusual strategy during the runoff election, trying to persuade black Democrats to cross over and support him in the Republican primary. Though the rise of Southern Republicanism in the 1950s did not begin because of race, indeed, Nixon was seen as more progressive than Kennedy on civil rights until his phone call to Coretta Scott King while her husband sat in a Birmingham jail, Southern Republican success mushroomed in the 60s and 70s due to the Republican Party's increasingly conservative position on civil rights. For 150 years, Mississippi politicians of both parties succeeded by vehemently opposing policies that benefited blacks. Indeed, it was only last year that Mississippi finally ratified the 13th Amendment freeing slaves. And yet Senator Thad Cochran's very prominent black outreach strategy, even as he courted a conservative Republican primary electorate that had been bred on decades of racially laden appeals, somehow succeeded. We've got three guests coming on Polyoptics this week to explain why. They'll be analyzing the Mississippi election and its national implications. We'll talk to Ashley Parker, national political reporter for the New York Times, Jay Barth, 
chairman of the political science department at Hendricks College outside Little Rock, Arkansas, and member of the Arkansas State Board of Education. But our first guest this week on Polyoptics, who will explain exactly how this unlikely Thad Cochran strategy succeeded, is Sam Hall, a reporter from the Jackson, Mississippi Clarion Ledger. Sam, welcome to Polyoptics. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, so tell us a little bit about uh, what's going on right now. First of all, well, let's back up. Are you surprised that Senator Cochran was able to pull this off? I know three weeks ago in the immediate aftermath of the primary, people sort of gave him up, for, you know, thought he was dead, thought he had no, uh, no shot to really come back because it's so rare that any incumbent who has to go to a runoff, uh, especially if they lose in the actual, you know, lose a plurality of the vote in the primary, we haven't seen one come back from that uh, situation for decades. Were you surprised? I was. Uh, you know, the, the closer it got to the runoff election, the uh, clearer it became that, that Cochran had turned it around. And the day before uh, the election on Monday, when the list of absentee ballots came out by county, that was the first time where we had any just real indication that Cochran may have um, had some success with his uh, voter outreach into Democratic areas. But you could also see a large uh, in, increase in uh, absentee ballots, even in Republican counties and Republican areas. And we knew that they were doing a, a two-track system. Uh, the, the first balloting um, in the primary, uh, right before Election Day, I was talking with some of the um, Cochran people, and they said that they had not gotten their ground game going early enough. They'd only been at it between two and three weeks. Um, so I knew that going into the runoff, they were just going to continue doing what they were doing there. So they had about five to six weeks worth of GOTV in Republican areas. And so, you know, that was the first time we said, well, okay, maybe they've got a, uh, a chance at it. Uh, what few polls there were still showed uh, McDaniel with a strong lead, but it's, you know, it's hard to poll in a primary and also, I mean, in a runoff and also these polls did not look at any Democratic crossover whatsoever. And that's, you know, that that's largely what won it for him, even though I think an increase in Republican boxes uh, is, is evident as well. The other surprising thing was that McDaniel's campaign didn't seem to have the same kind of energy uh, in those last uh, three weeks that they had had just a couple of weeks before the, the runoff. I mean, before the primary. As a matter of fact, Chris himself, just he disappeared. He didn't have any uh, personal appearances or anything for about three or four days after the uh, primary election. You know, so, you know, Sam, I was wondering about that. Is, was that a concerted effort to sort of hide him away because they were, you know, kind of going to the four corners and running out the clock? And they knew that he'd had sort of a record of, of uh, I don't want to say gas, but some pretty divisive and insensitive comments he'd made as a talk radio host, and they just wanted to make sure he didn't say something like that again? No, I don't think so. I Honestly, we never figured out what it was. And we asked, and they said that they just didn't have anything on the schedule, that they were regrouping and focusing on plans for the runoff. Um, some of us you know, speculated maybe he had vacation planned because nobody really expected a runoff, and so he just stuck with it just to get a few days of uh, rest. But the you know even the couple of weeks leading up to the 
the primary. He stopped doing anything with uh, mainstream media whatsoever. I think he gave an interview here or there, but that was about it. He he would stay with Safe Media, and uh, he had a couple of online sources that he continued to to talk with. Uh, but all of his events were extremely controlled, and you know that was the same thing with Cochran uh, during the the primary run as well, uh, even more so than what McDaniel had done. And um, Cochran did just the exa- exact opposite during the runoff. He got out there more. It cost him some. You know, he had a, a few gaps himself, uh, talking about farm animals of all things, which was just <laughs> extremely embarrassing. And, and you know, who knows what he was thinking with that one. And then also, just you know, he he lost his cool with a uh, Fox News uh, reporter and a few other things. But the but the bigger payoff was that he was out. He was out in front of people, and he was talking with the media more, and um, I, I think that helped reconnect him with with voters. It's you know a lot of people know Thad Cochran by name in Mississippi, but they don't have a lot of dealings with him. He's you know he's it's been six years since he's run, and it's been even longer than that since he's actually had to campaign. So he had some reconnecting he needed to do. Sure, sure. So, Sam, this show is called Polyoptics, and its focus originally was on the stagecraft of politics, how political actions and strategies look, and and how their appearance is going to affect people's attitudes about it. From what I've read, based on the county-level voting data, there was some rural backlash to the Cochran crossover strategy, but there wasn't a ton of it, and it wasn't as dramatic as I thought it would be. So... Given sort of the the stagecraft and how it looks in a state that continues to be plagued by racial divides as as Mississippi is, how was it that the Cochran team was able to sort of minimize the potential conservative rural backlash from their strategy of going to black Democrats and saying, hey, we've brought home a ton of money for HBCUs. Hey, we're going to support, you know, food stamps. You know, we've got a great record of supporting funding for food stamps. How was it that they were able to minimize that backlash? Well, I don't I don't think that they did it just in, you know, um, black communities or, or democratic precincts that they changed their entire message. And so it was it was far more universal. During the primary they focused uh, especially a lot of his supporters, they focused on Chris McDaniel and tried to paint him as out of touch, too far right wing, and someone who was too idealistic in in their approach to politics and would hurt Mississippi by, you know, cutting edu- voting against education funding and defense funding and some of these um, projects that, that Cochran has brought during the runoff. Cochran embraced uh, what was the the uh, major criticism, which was that. He had brought home a lot of money, so he he started talking directly to people about the projects that exist in Mississippi because of either votes that he made or more importantly the deals that he cut to get them here and so that was a that was a, uh, a constant conversation that the campaign started having 
wherever they went. And so, you know, it changed a little bit depending on the community. You know, if they're up in DeSoto County, they would talk about the infrastructure there that allowed DeSoto County to to grow as a uh, suburb of Memphis. Uh, Most of the water and sewer and, you know, not real sexy stuff, but you're talking about the fastest growing area in the state. All of that came from federal funding that that Cochran was able to get. And down on the coast, of course, he'd talk about Katrina, but he'd also talk about some of the research facilities and the um, military industry complex down there. And so when he would go into more rural areas, he would talk about whatever was important there. It, but he really embraced, this is what I've done for Mississippi, and made it right. about him instead of about, of about McDaniel. It, it, it certainly seems to comport with a lot of these age-old themes about politics. All politics is local. And what have you done for me lately? And, you know, the, the sort of importance of, of fixing the potholes, you know, all, all kind of the blocking and tackling of, of government that, um, that McDaniel really couldn't demonstrate any tangible successes in terms of, you know, bringing home bacon, because I guess ideologically, that just wasn't what he went up to Jackson to do, I guess. Is that right? Right. Well, and he had a, he had, he had two problems there. You know, one of his problems was that most of the bills that he introduced, uh, they never, they never stood a chance of passing because he had made an enemy out of the lieutenant governor. And even some of the bills that he wrote that the lieutenant governor supported, they just got folded into other bills so that McDaniel couldn't get any credit for it. Um, so he was not an effective legislator from that standpoint. And, you know, I think that's that that narrative didn't get out there a lot. It did early in the campaign, but it never it never stuck. But there were several things that he did vote against that Cochran had supported um, you know, kind of uh, companion pieces too from the, from Congress, and they they were able to get some mileage out of that during the runoff. I definitely noticed that the l- l- lieutenant governor was a strong supporter of of Cochran, and uh, pretty much all most of the elected officials that that were quoted over the you know last month or so seemed to be strong for Cochran, which I attributed to a couple things. First of all, you know, knowing him better, and you know, probably longer relationships, but uh, also. Any of those ambitious statewide elected officials or congressmen, they'd rather see some guy that's only going to be there six more years win than somebody who might be there 30 years. You know, who, is that yeah. right? And, and uh, that, that's probably uh, a little bit of it. But you, part of it, too, is, and, and I think this is most evident with Governor Barber, uh, I mean, Governor uh, Bryant getting involved early on and, and backing uh, Senator Cochran. Uh, Governor Bryant and uh, Chris McDaniel have been allies for a, a long time. When uh, the when the governor was the lieutenant governor, McDaniel was was with him, and and even though um, McDaniel is in the minor- well, he's in a minority of the Republicans who are in power there that that don't have a lot of authority uh, in the Senate. They still have a, an ally with with Bryant. And they're more ideologically alike than the lieutenant governor and the governor are. And so when you saw Bryant come out for Cochran 
very early on and very strong when he could easily have said, look, I'm the governor, I'm the head of the party, this is a primary, and I'm going to stay out of it. It shows you how important and how valuable uh, Cochran is to the state. And the the number one overriding factor was the fact that his seniority has done so much in the last few years, and if Republicans take the Senate then he is in line to become the appropriations chair. And that's extremely important to the state. And that's why you saw every statewide official, uh, Republican official, line up behind Cochran. That's why you saw, and you know, this, this, this kind of mixes the message of, of Cochran reaching out into the black community, but a lot of those mayors and supervisors, uh, black mayors, black supervisors throughout the Delta, they were with Cochran from the very beginning because they've got a long relationship with him and they value his seniority as well. And they're going to be with him in the general. Uh, they're not going to switch over and vote for Childers because he's the Democrat. They've already said so. Uh, they're going to stick and, with him in the Republican uh, and, in the general, and, and even that, though he's a Republican. And that makes sense to me because once you've got the leverage that they've got right now from having just worked so hard to to save you know Cochran, why would you forfeit that by going over to the underdog now? It just doesn't make sort of that much sense to me. You right. agree? This Absolutely. Is, this is Jeff Smith, guest hosting for Josh King on Polyoptics this week. If you can't tell by the accent, we've got a real-life Mississippian here on the line. <laughs> Sam Hall, the political reporter for the Jackson, Mississippi Clarion Ledger, who's explaining the dynamics of Thad Cochran's recent victory over State Senator Chris McDaniel in the runoff election uh, for the U.S. Senate on Tuesday. Let me ask you um, another question or two, if you, if you don't mind here, Sam. No, absolutely. Does, talk to us about the broader impact that this race might have on Mississippi politics. Um, is, it a, is it a one-off where it's just these exceptional sort of confluence of circumstances with Cochran having these long-standing relationships with, with black voters and, and a lot of black elected officials? Or is it something that you think other Republicans who are aspiring to uh, to be statewide elected officials in Mississippi might use as a model for their elections to try to build this these type of biracial coalitions? I don't think that you'll see a lot of it going forward, and, and the reason is this. When you get into our state elections, mm-hmm. you, you're going to have most of these Democratic voters, and especially throughout the Delta, they're going to be voting in the Democratic primary because all the elected officials on the local level are Democrats. I think that what you'll see the 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 longer impact of this is that is 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 what happens in the Republican Party, and so if you look to next year in the Republican primary, you're going to have a situation where this core group who supported McDaniel can get behind a conservative Tea Party-backed candidate, uh, maybe even McDaniel himself, and take on someone like Tate Reeves, who is you know in the barber vein, in the barber group, and is conservative, uh, beloved by the business community, but for whatever reason has has drawn the anger of the Tea Party. And so now you're looking at a situation where some of this crossover vote that existed, it's gone. Even some of this base Republican vote in Hines County, for instance, northeast Jackson, which is a huge 
number of Republican voters, even though it's a Democratic county, they're going to have a real trouble getting some of those out, depending on what the local races are, because these local elected officials are all Democrat. So now that opens it up to where it's a it's a lot easier for this this far conservative group to come in and try to take over uh, a few of the offices. Now, the flip side to that is I don't know where they're going to raise their money from, right? Because it, there's not a lot of. I mean, McDaniel struggled to raise money from within the state. Most of right. his money and, came and from that's outside the, point. the state. There's not a lot of far right money in the state. Most of the money in state in the Republican Party is behind more of the establishment uh, party. It, it's behind the business Republicans, the country club Republicans, if you will. So that that's that's going to be hard. Now, when you get into um, talking about you know attracting black voters and such as that, I, I do think what you could see is if you have a Republican candidate who is going to kind of embrace the same kind of, uh, you know, more populist uh, appeal of, you know, this is the role of government, this is what, you know, we've been able to do with government for you, then that might attract, you know, some more um, traditionally Democratic voters, depending on who the Democratic candidate is. But would that message cost a Republican uh, the support of people in the Piney Woods, you know, you know, the stronger conservatives from, you know, other parts of the state who who were drawn to McDaniel. Yeah, possibly, certainly. Yeah. But again, I mean, we're talking about in in a general election, and in a general election in Mississippi, I don't know that that message is is even needed because, you know, we are a a red state, sure. and you know, most of the statewide officials. That, that we have, uh, well, all but one are Republicans, and the Democrats just don't have a, a deep bench. So you're going to see, you know, two, maybe three really contested statewide races every year, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that's it. So you've done a hell of a job of describing the dynamics back home in Mississippi, and I'm curious, though, in Washington, D.C., does does what we've seen the last few weeks end up changing Dad Cochran's voting behavior? Is he somebody who now decides, you know what, I'm not running for re-election ever again. I got here, I was saved by black voters, and I'm going to support the Voting Rights Act extension? Or do you not see that happening? Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, honestly, I, I don't see that happening. But again, I... I don't know that he'll he'll ever have to make that vote necessarily either. Yeah. But I, I think that I don't think you'll see anything change with with Cochran. I think he's going to make the vote that he feels like he needs to make. He he's not going to run for re-election again. I think everybody knows that. Um, so he doesn't have to worry about it at all. All right. Well, listen, Sam. We really appreciate getting some of the local color from you, and uh, loved your coverage over the last several weeks of the race. Uh, you you really provided a a great lens into a world that's pretty different from the one that those of us in in New York and D.C. live in. So, uh, (laughs) yes, Yes, it is. Well, you know, let us know if you're going to be up this way and uh, and, and we'll we'll walk you around Manhattan and uh, show you our world, too. All right. Take care. Take care, Sam. Uh Bye-bye. History in the making. This is POTUS. POTUS, Sirius XM 124. Our second guest on Polyoptics this week is Ashley Parker. 
New York Times national political reporter. Ashley, welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you on the show. So you were down in Mississippi, uh, I guess, the last week or two covering the, the runoff election? Yeah, I was down there for about eight days right before the election. And had you spent much time in Mississippi before this race? Uh, I know most of us have, have probably read Faulkner and, and Grisham. <laughs> Paint us a little picture of, of what Mississippi culture is like. Um, so I, I mean, it really, what's interesting is it really depends on where you go in Mississippi. I was based in Jackson, so that's where I ended up basically every night. Um, but, you know, the the Delta um, in Mississippi, which sort of has more historically black voters, for instance, is very different than up north, where I also went to, for instance, DeSoto County, um, which is right there on the border with Memphis and is a sort of new development where a lot of people there work in Memphis, um, have moved into the state rather recently, don't have a ton of ties necessarily uh, to Mississippi or to the politics there. Um, And that also had a vibe of like a lot of big box stores, like any sort of exurb development you would see. Sure. And then you've got the Piney Woods in the kind of southeast part of the state, which is, I think, different from the suburbs of the northeast and very different from the Delta as well. And I think. Yeah, exactly. and, And that's more of where McDaniel's base was. Yeah, that was uh, McDaniel's base. Um, I also spent some time in Philadelphia, Mississippi, um, in Neshoba County um, that has uh, this this famous Neshoba County Fair every year um, that's sort of like the Iowa State Fair for Mississippi politicians. Um, But yeah, so basically every part of the state has a slightly different, different vibe. Philadelphia, of course, the site of the tragic murders of the three civil rights workers back 50 years ago. And also, I believe... Almost exactly to the to the week. To the week. And, and also, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the Neshoba County Fair was when was where Ronald Reagan announced his uh, bid for president in 1980. An interesting historical artifact. <laughs> so uh, talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, what happened and where things are right now. What happened was um, there was a primary election uh, on June 3rd where both McDaniel and Thad Cochran, neither one got over 50% of the vote. Um, And so it went into a runoff. And going into the runoff, McDaniel had all the momentum. He turned out his Tea Party supporters. They were enthusiastic. They were excited. He had the support of national outside conservative groups. And even when I went down there, you did sort of see that. The McDaniel rallies had a feel of, you know, they felt like big political rallies. There was lots of music and he was kissing babies and there were excited people. But what happened was that Thad Cochran very quietly um, but very diligently pulled together uh, a coalition of voters that was sort of historic. He got typical Republicans. He got Republicans who maybe didn't vote for him in the primary because they thought, you know, he's had he's had six terms. He's going to win the primary again. They didn't think they needed to show up to vote. And he also reached out to Democrats and largely black voters and got some of them to turn out. And were you surprised? I know I was surprised that there wasn't more of a backlash from conservative whites at Cochran's strategy. And I was surprised, frankly, that they were as public as they were about the strategy of reaching out to black voters. What, what are your thoughts on that? Um, well, I think there, I think there was uh, some some backlash to Cochran um, among conservative whites, among Tea Party voters. You even saw that in uh, 
the speech Chris McDan- the concession or sort of the not concession speech that Chris McDaniel gave. Um, and yeah, I, I was a little surprised too that the Cochran campaign was so open. But to be clear, they weren't actually that open. The people who really talked about it were a lot of the black religious leaders, the pastors who were organizing the effort. When at least when I would talk to, the, and I wrote about this, but when I would talk to the Cochran people, they didn't hide it, but they would say, "Look." We're reaching out to all Mississippians. We've always represented all Mississippians, and we're reaching out to black, white, Democrat, Republican, man, woman. We don't have a different message. So they actually tried to downplay it, at least in the run-up to the election. So the Republican Party uh, came out last year with this autopsy in the wake of the Romney defeat. And the autopsy urged Republican candidates to be more tolerant of diversity and to try to attract more support of you know, from blacks and Latinos, gays, young people. Um, and so in some respects, the Cochran result had to be a breath of fresh air for the national Republican establishment, both because it kept someone with McDaniel's record of insensitivity from getting a higher profile, and also because it highlighted a Republican winning with a biracial electoral coalition in the Deep South, no less. But do you think anything resembling this strategy can be replicated in other states? <laughs> Well, I think it depends. One of the really interesting things about Mississippi, for instance, was that you could vote. They don't have party registration. So you could vote in the Republican runoff as long as you had not voted in the Democratic primary. So a lot of these voters, who Democratic voters, black voters, who did vote for Cochran, may very well vote for the Democratic nominee against Catherine in November. So for them, it was sort of the best of both worlds. They could vote for the candidate who they viewed as the lesser of two evils, so to speak, in the in the Republican runoff, and then still vote for the Democrat if they want um, in, in the general. But I certainly think that coalition politics... Um, whether it's, as we saw, some African-American voters in Mississippi or Hispanic voters in a presidential election, um, when they band together, can certainly make a difference. Now, if that's a difference for the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, I don't know. So uh, do you think that this ultimately changes Dad Cochran's voting behavior? And do you think that uh, the the black Democrats who crossed over and voted for him, you know, you, you said some of them might go home in the fall and, and vote for Travis Childers, the former congressman who is the Democratic nominee for the Senate seat. Um, do you think that uh, the black Democrats will kind of build on this temporary alliance with Cochran to try to leverage policy, you know, out of him over the next few years? Or do you think they'll kind of go home to uh, to the Democratic nominee? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. And in talking to a lot of um, the leaders yesterday who mobilized on behalf of Cochran, you know, there isn't sort of an overt quid pro quo. They now don't expect him to vote, you know, a certain way on X or Y policy. Um, but they, but by the same token, they do certainly expect, they said, a seat at the table and maybe a louder voice at the table. And there are issues they care about, like health care and education um, that that they want to see Senator Cochran uh, support. Although, again, I would also add that a lot of them said that it was not a heavy lift to vote for Senator Cochran because they felt that he had always been respectful uh, to their community and sort of good on these issues. So it wasn't asking for a huge leap. They were already somewhat on the same page with the senator. Sure, sure. So did you cover the, uh, the Eric Cantor race at all, Ashley? Not... Not really. I mean, I cover uh, one of the issues I focus on on the Hill is immigration. Um, So certainly everyone in the aftermath was kind of interested in dissecting that portion of it. (laughs) 
And and what was your sense? You know, I know in the immediate aftermath of the race, a lot of people were were calling attention. You know, if 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 Eric Cantor's election were a game of Clue, uh, <laughs> the the immediate punditry was you know it was immigration uh, in in the uh, you know in in the rural areas, and then subsequent analysis of, of the precinct level return suggested that actually it wasn't so much the rural areas, but more the suburban areas, and maybe immigration wasn't to blame. What what's right. your sense? Well, I think at a surface sort of gut check level, you're you're right. I think you know his his opponent, Dave Bratt, ran on a platform that was basically consists of being anti-immigration, anti-amnesty, um, and so sort of initially it has a chilling effect on House Republicans who maybe want to get something done, and then they say, why why would I take the risk? Um, by the same token, you're right. If you do look deeper, it's not clear that immigration necessarily played the decisive role in that race. You have people like Senator Lindsey Graham in South Carolina, who very conservative state, um, who was one of the architects of the bipartisan Senate immigration bill, uh, who beat a Tea Party challenger or six or five or six Tea Party challengers handedly. And one thing he did um, that Leader Cantor never did was he sort of carved out a position for himself, stood by it, didn't hedge, and went home, talked about it all the time, and explained uh, to his voters, this is what I believe, here's why I believe it, you may disagree with me, but again, these are my reasons, and I hope you accept that. And Cantor sort of got into this weird middle ground of he he never really supported immigration, but he didn't really not support it, and I, I think that could have hurt him just as much on the immigration front specifically. We're talking to Ashley Parker, national political reporter for the New York Times here on Polyoptics. I'm Jeff Smith guest hosting for Josh King. Ashley, a few minutes ago, you alluded to Chris McDaniel's election night non-concession concession speech. Let's take a listen to that for a moment. There is something a bit strange. There is something a bit unusual about a Republican primary that's decided by liberal Democrats. So much for bold colors. So much for principle. I guess they can take some consolation in the fact that they did something tonight by once again compromising, by once again reaching across the aisle, by once again abandoning the conservative movement. So, Ashley, we hear Chris McDaniel on election night uh, refusing to concede. After the euphoria of beating Eric Cantor, how does the Tea Party respond? Do they respond as McDaniel did by sort of, you know, calling this a stolen election and refusing to go along? Uh, do they pick up their marbles and, and go home? Do they mobilize against uh, a Lamar Alexander in a state like Tennessee? Where do they go from here? I mean, I think it really depends on who you talk to. Some of the outside groups who supported uh, McDaniel with a lot of money sort of said, you know, look, our we we tried and we now congratulate and rally behind the Republican nominee. Um, we thought McDaniel would have been better. We are more ideologically aligned with him, but we respect the voters' decision. And then you have some people who are are very angry and are wondering about you know 
what they call irregularities in the Mississippi voting process and sort of aren't quite letting this drop. So I think reaction is kind of all over the board on that. And do you see it kind of coalescing in either direction or you think it's going to take a while for that to shake out? I mean, I think I think it's a really good question because as we see with each one of these big elections that get a lot of media attention, each time something happens, right? Like a new narrative is right. born. The Tea Party is dead. Against- the Tea Party's revived. The Tea Party's dead. Exactly. And so in the course of, I think, two weeks between Cantor and the Mississippi race, you had exactly Tea, tea Party alive, Tea Party resurgent and Tea Party dead, Tea Party thwarted. And I think I think the Tea Party exists. I think they are a small but very vocal group of people. And it really depends on, as we saw, the election, the candidate, <laughs> the races people run. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I tend to be very cynical about these things. And, you know, the headlines, you know, in the last couple of days have been like, you know, black voters uh, wielding, you know, the balance of power in Mississippi election, you know, could signify new trend. And, you know, to me, it's like, hey, like in the general election this year, black voters, probably 90 percent will vote for the Democrat and about 85 percent of white voters, you know, 80 to 85 percent of white voters will probably vote for the Republican. And I assume we'll probably go back to having generally like racially polarized elections in the deep south. So let me ask you a kind of a, a very inside baseball question. Stu Stevens is a guy who was the <laughs> chief media strategist for Mitt Romney. And he was sort of, you know, they, he was the victim of a real pile-on in the aftermath of the 2012 election. A lot of the, the guns in the, in the sort of circular firing squad were aimed at him. Yet he appears to be the hero in, in the wake of the Cochrane race. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, that sort of goes to what we were discussing before, which is that, you know, any one data point can totally and often incorrectly um, or with very little nuance set the narrative. So not only was Stu Stevens, I mean, from Romney to Cochran, but also just from Cochran basically losing the primary to winning the runoff in a matter of three weeks, he went from sort of scapegoat to hero again. Yeah. No, I mean, Cochran was given up for dead. You know, and I think some. And, of the, and when that happened, people were saying Stu Stevens, who couldn't, you know, who couldn't help Mitt Romney, you know, fails again for that Cochran, and and then you know ultimately they won. So I think probably tales of Stu's demise as well as tales of his <laughs> brilliance are both quite overstated. <laughs> <laughs> but tales of his eccentricity are not. Um, Certainly not. <laughs> a, a guy who's who's I think been to the North Pole on foot. He's a uh, filmmaker. He's sort of a, a Renaissance man. So the last question I have for you, Ashley, deals with 2016 politics. After what we've seen, you know, we've seen this primary narrative, as you said, uh, you know, has just been all over the map. And every two weeks, you know, we're getting a different story about the direction of the Republican Party. How do you think the Mississippi race plays in and and I guess the, the Virginia race as well? Who does it help? Who does it hurt? And how does it affect broader positioning for 2016? Um, huh, that's a that's a very good question. I don't I don't know sort of one to one that either of these races have a huge effect on on twenty sixteen. I mean I think I think to the extent that people fear the Tea Party, which they certainly did coming out of the Virginia election and which they did coming out of the Mississippi primary at least, it will mean for Republicans that to win the nomination and to make it through sort of the gauntlet of the primary system that 
that they're going to have to, or they may feel like they have to move to the right on a lot of issues, which is then very tough uh, to move back to the center in a general election. So I think that's certainly something to watch for. And we saw that for Mitt Romney in 2012 on a lot of, I mean, I think they had like 21 debates where he was forced to take really conservative positions, most notably, but not, you know, exclusively saying that he thinks immigrants should self-deport. And and that was not a stance that helped him in the general. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think Chris Christie, you know, Chris Christie sort of originally looked like he might be the one candidate who could make the electability argument so powerfully that he might be able to sort of like thumb his nose a little bit at the base on some of these issues or just run as the guy he is and uh i think that's clearly going to be a little more difficult as weakened as he is in the aftermath of bridgegate my personal opinion is that he's never going to be on the 2016 ballot but uh you know that remains to be seen so thank you so much for joining us, Ashley, and uh, hope you can return to Polyoptics sometime soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care. Bye. History in the making. This is POTUS, Sirius XM 124. This is Jeff Smith here, sitting in for Josh King on Polyoptics. We're talking about the Mississippi Senate race and Southern politics uh, in the context of national politics. And as our third guest uh, for this week, we've got an authority on the subject, one of the most prominent uh, Southern politics experts in academics today. His name is Jay Barth. He's the chairman of the Political Science and International Relations Department at Hendricks College in Conway, Arkansas. Welcome to the show, Jay. Hey, Jeff. Good to hear from you. Yeah. In that introduction, I neglected to say something else, which is, I think, notable. Uh, Do you want to describe that, Jay? that <laughs> well you're also the, you're also on the state board of education yeah. in arkansas and uh i think you're the first openly gay statewide official in arkansas is that right uh yeah i guess that is accurate hadn't thought of it that way but that is accurate and uh you have long studied southern politics you wrote you literally wrote the book on arkansas politics uh and uh you wrote it with a co-author who i think probably some of our listeners have heard of tell us about that yeah, so uh, Diane Blair, uh, who uh, uh, is, was one of Hillary Clinton's best friends, uh, uh, they both uh, were in Fayetteville in the uh, in the 1970s and built a bond when Hillary Clinton came to uh, to Fayetteville to teach at the law school, and uh, uh, she wrote the first edition in the 1980s, and obviously uh, a lot has ch- a lot had changed in Arkansas between the 1980s and 2005 uh, when. Uh, after Diane got ill, she asked me to to, to take the reins and, and do the second edition of the book. And uh, now we're moving into, into the third edition because Arkansas has done another uh, big change over the last uh, eight or ten years. So talk to us about those changes in Arkansas and then, if you can, relate them a little bit to the changes in Mississippi because I think the states have some similarities. I know Mississippi is a lot higher percentage uh, African-American, I think about 37, and, and Arkansas is closer to what, like 12 or so? Uh, a little bit higher than that, oh, more like 15. More like 15. Uh, but, but you both have kind of a delta region, and then you both have kind of like a hilly and almost mountainous region, which uh, has very different historical political patterns. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's. Uh, it, it, there are some some important uh, similarities. I mean, but there are also some very important differences driven by uh, that you know decidedly larger African American population in, in Mississippi, and that you know I do think that that you know as Bill Key wrote. You know, uh, in 1949, you know, race is everything in, in Mississippi politics. Uh, 
uh, race is not everything in, in Arkansas politics, uh, but it's a very relevant factor. And uh, certainly over the past six years, during the Obama era, uh, Arkansas has seen a, an, a monstrous shift uh, in its uh, voting patterns, especially among uh, white rural voters uh, who historically had really hung with Democrats, especially in state and local races. And uh, the rise of Barack Obama really has, I think, uh, uh, forced the racial issue in a way uh, that has, uh, where those white rural voters really have bailed on the Democratic Party uh, in the Obama era in Arkansas. So while Arkansas has a much smaller African-American population that I think doesn't, means that race isn't all that uh, is defining about Arkansas politics is certainly enough of a factor, and especially when you have white rural residents who haven't been forced to grapple with race, uh, they uh, they respond in in a way that produces some backlash against the Democratic Party. You know, Mississippi, a state with a larger African American population, with a with a decidedly uh, different. Uh, history, especially during the civil rights era, um, I think uh, you know race is omnipresent uh, in defining uh, Mississippi politics. Just at the time, uh, just in the way that V.O. Key um, uh, wrote about it uh, decades ago. I mean, if you visit Mississippi, uh, race really is all over almost any most casual conversation uh, in Mississippi in a way that I think is, is not the case in a state like Arkansas, just across the border. Uh, and, but and they yet, do share some, and, some and, real and, similarities, and, uh, and, and, and I think that's relevant. We talk about race being everything in, in Mississippi, and yet they've sort of, you know, this past week transcended race to some extent with Senator Cochran's biracial coalition that he built to emerge uh, victorious in the runoff against Senator State Senator Chris McDaniel. Is this a watershed moment for Mississippi politics, or is it sort of being overhyped uh, right now in, in sort of the euphoria of the National Republican Party who got their man in the election? Yeah. You know, I'd really, um, you know, argue a bit with your, your verb, uh, uh, transcended. Um, I, I think that, you know, in, in many ways this was really you know, uh, a traditional upscale white population, really the country club set, that added to it, uh, not in any kind of cross-racial way, uh, but really, you know, just added on enough African-American votes with some very smart, very targeted uh, outreach to the African-American community, uh, at least in parts of Mississippi. And I think it's, it's interesting, you know, and you look at the map, it really was a handful of counties, it appears, where uh, where there were significant, uh, slightly more concentrated African American votes, where uh, where the where the Cochran campaign really went all in, and they did it. It appears with two real methods. They did it uh, by using the African American church uh, and reaching out to uh, to uh, African American ministers who really, you know, made the case at the end that this was one of those exceptional times and it's t- it was appropriate for uh, parishioners to go out and, and vote Republican uh, for uh, in this race, and and secondly. You know, some targeted outreach, especially with mail, direct mail, and really some kind of uh, pretty low-end pamphleting uh, in in some of these more urban neighborhoods. Uh, that that's what appears to have happened, and I think it was a somewhat special circumstance. And I think it's also special by the fact that you know Thad Cochran is um, uh, uh, 
a white politician, a white Republican in the South, but he's not someone who really um, has uh, been a, um, a polarizer on racial issues. I mean, and, he, and in fact, even in the 70s, when he sort of came of age politically and, and became prominent, he didn't do it in the way that some other Southern Republicans did by being kind of a far-right guy on civil rights. No, he was, you know, he was quite, you know, he's a mild-mannered guy. I mean, and that 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 has always been the case. Obviously, he's he, he remains that way. And and on race, uh, there was certainly some of that mild-manneredness uh, back in the day. And you know, it's important to recognize he replaced a Democrat, James Eastland, who was one of the most vehement, uh, nasty uh, 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 racial demagogues of his generation. And, and I would say I would say the other Mississippi senator with whom Eastland served was a little nastier, Senator Bilbo. Uh, no, Bilbo. Well, B- Bilbo was even uh, earlier. Uh, yeah. You know, Eastland was Eastland. You know, in the fifties and sixties, you know, is pretty pretty out there on these issues. And you know, I think stylistically there was a, a nice contrast there for uh, uh, for uh, for Cochran. And you know, he really didn't you know, ever use race. I mean, obviously, every Republican in the South benefited from race, but he didn't use it quite as overtly. And I think if you, you know, if you drive around Mississippi, you drive around Jackson, you know, there are some pretty clear uh, examples of Thad Cochran bringing home the bacon in a way that directly benefits the the African-American community uh, uh, in that that place. And so, you know, he at least had a record to run on. Uh, You know, he was an advocate of um, of a uh, Martin Luther King national holiday uh, back in the 80s at a time where it was a really, you know, hot button issue. That's that's the kind of thing that where the, these folks who, who went out and advocated for, for Cochrane in the last 10 or 12 days, you know, they had something to, uh, to work with. Uh, and, you know, if it had been a Jesse Helms type guy, uh, there would have been nothing to work with, right? And right. Cochrane uh, was, was an exceptional case. And I think it's also important to recognize we're not talking about tens of thousands of votes. I mean, you know, um, he had to overcome about a 1,800 vote deficit from the first primary, uh, and he did so comfortably, and it does appear that it was primarily African-American votes, but it, we're really talking, you know, only uh, a few thousand votes uh, that re- really helped nudge him over over the hump. Because he also, it's pretty clear, brought out some, some base of, of the Republican Party that sure. had the first time around. Sure. We're talking to Jay Barth, chairman of the political science department at Hendricks College in Conway, Arkansas. This is Jeff Smith sitting in for Josh King this week on polyoptics. Jay, because it's the radio, we can digress a little bit, and I'm going to tell you a quick story here and tell our listeners a quick story, which uh, this might be the only Southern political anecdote maybe that I, don't kn- that I know and you don't know, but you can correct me on that. Did you know that when Eastland ran for Senate Majority Leader, uh, he was one vote away from winning, and he tried to get his home state colleague Bilbo. He wanted his vote, and he sort of sent word that he needed it. And Bilbo, and they never spoke. They were blood enemies. And, and you know what Bilbo said back to him was uh, he, he told the messenger, tell that son of a bitch if he wants my vote, he can come talk to me and ask for it. And Eastland despised him so much and was so proud that he refused to go to his home state colleague and ask for his support for leadership and ultimately lost by one vote. Yeah, I've not heard that story. Um, yeah, they, I mean, those, those, uh, 
those politicians during that era. I mean, they they built their own very personal fiefdoms. You know, in the absence of political party, uh, they really it was it was a very personal kind of uh, uh, organization, and uh, that separated them from their colleagues of the same party. So you talked a little bit about the strategy, the pamphleting, and the uh, you know direct mail and and uh, this sort of targeted messaging into African American neighborhoods in, in Hines County and a couple other counties. What's what interested me most, Jay, is that you know it used to be that you could kind of do these isolated messages in different part of the parts of the state or even a district, but now with kind of twenty four seven media and Twitter and these national reporters everywhere. I I expected it to be harder to isolate those messages and have very different messages going into those black neighborhoods versus the messages that Cochran was putting forth to, you know, the Piney Woods area of eastern Mississippi where he was emphasizing his opposition to the Affordable Care Act. Were you surprised that McDaniel wasn't able to do a more effective job of highlighting those divergent Cochran messages? Yeah, I mean, I I thought it was interesting that uh, um, it was it was it was noticeable. I mean, um, you know, if it, it would if you read Twitter, I mean, you could see instances of it. Uh, and, and you were I, and you were down in Jackson, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, but but I do think that um, it's uh, it's it it is a, there do does remain some forms of political communication that at least for a few days can kind of fly under radar. Ultimately, you know, they'll fly above radar. But you can still, uh, and I think you know this from your campaigns, with with radio advertising that is so hyper-targeted demographically, you know, with with these kind of flyers that are, you know, not even mailed out, but really stuck in people's doors, you know, that really is very different from television advertising. Um, and, uh, and you know, and I, don't, I, I would be interested to know how many pieces of mail they sent. Um, you know, my gut is, to the African-American community, my gut is they just real, went in a very hyper-targeted fashion looking at folks who were pretty loyal voters uh, but had not voted in that first primary because on the Democratic side because they were, you know, those voters were locked out of this Republican primary. So I don't think they were dealing with a huge universe here. It would be very interesting to uh, talk to some of the uh, Cochran folks to, to talk about exactly what they saw as their universe of, of persuadable um, African-American voters. Um, I'm, I'm betting it was not huge. And I wonder if McDaniel, I know he was sort of, it seemed disorganized throughout the runoff, but I wonder if he considered any counter-programming in African-American areas, whereby, you know, when it became obvious that, you know, the Cochran campaign was sort of telegraphing that they were going after crossover votes from black Democrats, I was wondering if McDaniel considered going to those neighborhoods and, and putting flyers out, highlighting, for example, Cochran's opposition to Obamacare and maybe other votes he'd taken over the last 30 years that wouldn't look so good in those communities. Well, I do think it's a way in which the, the McDaniel campaign, I mean, they were really, it's a pretty purist campaign. And yeah. and, and I think that it would have been, uh, you know, contradictory to, to some of the principles of the campaign. Sure. Uh, I, and whereas, whereas the Cochran campaign, I mean, that was just sort of pure, like, we'll do whatever we need to do to win. Huh. It wasn't about ideology at all. And uh, the McDaniel campaign, and you're saying, exhibited none of that ideological flexibility. Not at all. And you know, when you look at the the, the text of the materials that were uh, were were sent out or, or, or dropped off, 
you know, they weren't inaccurate. I mean, they were, you know, they were they were pretty darn accurate in terms of the projects that were very beneficial to the African-American community in particular that, that Cochran had brought home. Um, and I think it also, it, it does appear that it really was something that happened in the last five to seven days of the campaign. So they didn't have a lot of time to be flexible, and they were clearly <coughs> out, uh, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> outgunned in, <coughs> in the past, in the last few days. Sorry. For my cough. That's okay. They were really, really out, outgunned those last few days um, um, monetarily, and I don't think they had the field. They were having to focus their field campaign on getting their own voters back to the polls. So, Jay, last question for you. Six weeks ago, the Tea Party was dead. Two or three weeks ago, uh, the Tea Party was ascendant. The Tea Party is now dead again. We just talked with uh, Ashley Parker from the New York Times about this um, wildly shifting narrative. Where do you think the Tea Party is, and how do you think ultimately this Mississippi Senate race and the Cantor race a few weeks ago affect national, you know, sort of political dynamics? Well, I think uh, you know it's all about all about context. I think there are some locales uh, where you know the Tea Party is, is quite vibrant, but I think that as time has passed. You know, the Republican establishment has figured out, in most cases, how to respond effectively to the Tea Party and how to basically out, um, out, out, out. How to kind of neutralize them, them. And, and how to counter them in, a, in an appropriate way. Um, and so, you know, with, you know, it, it makes sense that, you know, insurgent forces across time, you know, get weaker and weaker, right? Because they, 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 they really thrive on surprise, as we saw in the Cantor race. Uh, and when it's uh, when it becomes a little more uh, expected that that the Tea Party is going to be uprising, there there are enough tools to use, as we saw in Kentucky, as we saw, uh, you know, uh, here in Mississippi this last week, uh, that could counter them. Nobody knows more about Southern politics than Jay Barth, uh, the chairman of the political science department at Hendricks College in Arkansas and member of the Arkansas State Board of Education. Jay, thank you so much for joining us this week on Polyoptics. Thanks, Jeff. Good to talk to you. And that'll do it for another week uh, in Polyoptics. Thank you so much for listening and see you soon. 